we read it in the last part of Psalm 139. And in connection with that, we also want to read from Matthew and Romans. So we'll start by reading from Matthew 5, verse 43 to 48. Matthew 5, verse 43 to 48. We hear the Lord Jesus say, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's continue reading at Romans 12, Romans 12, verse 17 to 21. Romans 12, from verse 17, where we read, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And now we turn to the text for the sermon this morning, from Psalm 139, the last section, from verse 19 to 24. Thirty-nine from verse nineteen, where we read, "Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you?" I hate them with the utmost hatred. They've become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way.
Shall we pray? Gracious God and Father, thank you for your word. Guide and strengthen your servant that he may proclaim it faithfully and boldly. Open our ears to hear. Open our eyes to see. Open our hearts to receive what you have in store for us. Grant us that we may listen humbly, seeking your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we've seen with the previous sermons of Psalm 139, Psalm 139 indeed is a wonderful comforting psalm. In it we praise God for taking us in his care already from our conception and birth. We praise God as the one who knows us inside out, who is everywhere present and who is almighty to save. But beloved, what about the last verses of the psalm? Isn't that totally out of tune with the rest of the psalm? Suddenly we hear the psalmist pray, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. And a little lady goes on to say, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? I hate them with the utmost hatred. Wow, those strong words. What had we to do with those words? Aren't they embarrassing for us? Is it appropriate to pray for destruction of others and to hate them? This is certainly not considered to be politically correct in our Western society. Hate speech is considered to be a most serious offence, deserving a total ban from public life, at least if that offence is committed by a Christian. Just think of those Christians who have been vilified for expressing their Christian views on homosexuality and transgenderism. That their vilification came with real hate speech and even death threats is conveniently ignored by those PC warriors. And this shows their hypocrisy. And that by hate speech they actually mean speech that they themselves hate. And this also exposes the anti-Christian nature of those PC warriors. But back to the question. Is it appropriate to pray for destruction of others and to hate them? 
Is it right of David to do this? If it is, haven't we now moved to a higher moral ground with the teaching of Jesus Christ in the New Testament? Didn't Jesus teach us, love your neighbours, your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you, Luke 6, verse 27 and 28? Doesn't David's prayer contradict Jesus' instruction? Must we conclude that David's conduct is at a sub-Christian level? And that two testaments of the Bible contain different ethical codes of conduct? The Old Testament being more focused on justice and judgment, while the New Testament would be more focused on love and forgiveness? Well, beloved, let's consider this when I preach to you. Zeal for the glory of God and his kingdom. That's the theme of the sermon. Zeal for the glory of God and his kingdom. And we'll look at two points. Firstly, a prayer for the defeat of God's enemies. And secondly, a prayer for the cleansing of one's own heart and life. So a prayer for the defeat of God's enemies and a prayer for the cleansing of one's own heart and life. Yes, what's David doing here? David has just reflected on God's greatness and glory. Also on the wonder of our human existence and God's ever-present care. Such an almighty and caring God deserves the love and devotion of everyone. Yet there are those who oppose this God and where it possible would seek to frustrate his purposes. They are men of bloodshed, we read. It seems likely that they even seek David's life. David, God's anointed king, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, through whom God was bringing the Messiah into the world, David's son and Lord. Such evil people must not succeed. Either they must change their ways and turn to God, or they must perish. There could be no other course. The enemies of God must be defeated else they will destroy God's work. Note that these enemies are not pagans. They're people who have grown up among God's people. They know God's glorious name. But what do they do? They misuse God's name to accomplish their own wicked purposes. They don't only violate the sixth commandment by their murderous actions, but worse still, they violate the third commandment by treating God with contempt and abusing his name. And what does God say about those who do this? The Lord would not leave him unpunished who takes his name in, in vain. Brothers and sisters, in this context it's clear 
that David is not voicing personal feelings of hatred against those who may be his personal enemies. David was a man of noble character. Despite his sins and shortcomings, he showed that he was a man willing to forgive. He didn't harbour grudges. What we read in the text is not an expression of personal vindictiveness. David exhibited the opposite of a vindictive or revengeful spirit. He was personally assaulted time and again. Never did he attempt to affect his own vindication or lift his hand to exercise what many considered as his royal prerogative. David showed how reluctant he was to take things into his own hands when Saul was pursuing him and falsely accusing him. 1 Samuel contains one illustration after the next of how David treated his enemy. Note, for example, David's touching lament for Saul and Jonathan, which he composed at their death. David did not express glee that his former enemy was killed. On the contrary, he killed the Amalekites for rejoicing over Saul's death. 2 Samuel 1. In our text, David is expressing his zeal for God. It's all about God's glory, God's kingdom, God's enemies. David is overcome with a loathing against wickedness. In the presence of God, it is difficult to look with favour upon sin. The contemplation of the majesty of God causes David to realise that he must oppose those who are God's enemies and that he must distance himself from them. Thus he says literally, Is it not those who hate you O Lord, that I hate? And is it not those who rise up against you that I loathe? That they are enemies of God is mentioned first and is emphasised. They are the objects of David's hatred. In this context, David again addresses God as Lord with capital letters. And by this he shows his close relationship with God. It's his covenant God who these people are hating and opposing. David knows there can be only one reaction to such men. He must reject them, oppose them. Reject their wicked schemes. David's hatred is clearly different from that of those wicked men. Wicked men hate God. And their hatred is an evil emotion. 
David hates, but his hatred is like God's hatred. Not proceeding, proceeding from an evil emotion, but rather from the supreme desire that God's purposes may stand and that wickedness may disappear. Had David not hated, he would have, in fact, desired the success of evil. And it's good to keep this in mind when you consider the nature of David's hatred. Beloved, it's frightening to see that Christians can sometimes be in the presence of evil and have little or no reaction to it. To see evil and not to be alarmed by it is a sign that something serious is wrong in us. David is different. His prayer expresses a fierce abhorrence of sin and a desire to see God's name and cause triumph. It shows zeal for God and his kingdom. But beloved, didn't Christ teach us to love our enemies? Indeed. This is a precept that must govern us. As Christians, we're obliged to love our personal enemies. But doesn't this show that there is a discrepancy between David's prayer and Jesus' command? Yes, even between the Old and New Testament, David speaks of hatred and judgment. Christ instructs us to love and forgive. Well, beloved, here it's interesting to note that love for one's enemies was already an obligation in the Old Testament. Exodus 23, verse 4 and 5. Leviticus 19, verse 17 and 18. Moreover, the so-called high ethical stands of the New Testament found in Romans 12 about feeding one's enemies when he's hungry is actually a quote from the Old Testament from Proverbs 25, verse 21. Note also that Christ and the New Testament don't only speak about love but also about God's judgment. Christ is the loving and merciful Saviour who forgives us our sins. But he also tells us that he's the one who is coming in judgment on those who disobey him. In Matthew 23, we hear Jesus thundering, fo- thundering forth woes upon the teachers of the law and Pharisees whom he calls hypocrites. The seven woes all condemn and evoke God's judgment on them. And Jesus finally says to them, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? Verse 33, Matthew 23. Do we have here an inconsistency 
in the ministry of the saviour of love? Not at all. Rather we have here his loving warning to the wicked to repent. For God's curses will surely overtake those who do not repent. Think also of the Apostle Paul. He is full of love for Jesus. And this love compels him to urge men to be reconciled to God. Yet this same Paul also calls God's curses upon God's enemies. In Galatians 1, Paul says regarding one who would pervert the gospel of the Lord Jesus, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Galatians 1 verse 8 and 9. Paul is calling out the damnation of such a person. And this is not just a slip of the tongue. For Paul repeats it with great emphasis. He is to be accursed. The teaching of the New Testament is that God's curse rests on all who oppose the good news of Jesus Christ. God's justice and love form the ground of both the Old and New Testament. There is therefore no contradiction between David and Jesus or the Old and New Testament. There has never been a place for personal vengeance for God's people. In Deuteronomy 32 verse 35 the Lord says, vengeance is mine and retribution for the day of their calamity is near. And in Romans 12, verse 19 to 21, Paul quotes those very words in the context of prohibiting the exercise of personal vengeance. Vengeance belongs to the Lord is the rule of all times. then where do we get the idea that it's wrong to ask God to bring judgment on the wicked? That mentality has crept in so subtly that it has become a very common idea in our day. You may have even heard Christians express such intense love for friends and relatives that God's judgment against their evil deeds is rejected. Yet, brothers and sisters, if all we can talk about is love and acceptance and we ignore God's judgment against sin, we in fact show a lack of love for God and also a lack of love for our neighbour. If I ignore God's judgment, I show that I don't yet understand the seriousness of man's sin against holy God. I then also show that I've not yet understood 
what took place on the cross. There on the cross, the curse of God came upon Christ for us. A very serious matter. Disastrous. Something for which we need to warn people before it's too late. Have we perhaps weakened our presentation of the gospel by failing to adequately warn people of God's wrath unless they shelter with Jesus Christ? Beloved, in the petition, your kingdom come. Christ teaches us to pray for the victory of his kingdom. And when you pray for that, you're at the same time praying that the kingdom of Satan would be destroyed. And when you pray that the kingdom of Satan be destroyed, you're asking for destruction of all those who will ultimately make up that kingdom. If God's kingdom is to come, then all that stands in the way of that kingdom must be removed. What do you do when you see enemies of God attacking or even killing Christians? You can cry out to God for the conversion of those evil people, but also for God's justice to be done. You relinquish to the Lord your very natural feelings of personal hatred. Our Lord will bring justice. You also pray that God will cause the evildoers and murderers to be brought to trial and to be punished for their crime. And that through this they may be converted in order to experience God's forgiveness. And if they refuse to repent, you pray that God will oppose them, stop them, end their game. Praying for the coming of God's kingdom implies both a, repair, a prayer for the repentance of sinners and for the destruction of the kingdom of evil and those who are identified with it. But we do not know who are permanently identified with the kingdom of evil. And thus we cannot pray for the doom of known individuals in the way the inspired authors of scripture could do that. Rather we must show love to all people, even our enemies. This prayer for their conversion is, however, accompanied by a prayer for the defeat of Satan's kingdom. And the latter cannot be conceived apart from those who ultimately belong to that kingdom. Let 
this then be the prayer of our hearts. O Lord, come in power. Show your glory. Bring judgment on the wicked that they may seek you. And if not God, destroy all who want bow to you. Let them know that you alone are God, the most high over all the earth. Brothers and sisters, if you're conscious of the glory of God and of the seriousness of sin and judgment, then you will also pray for the cleansing of your own heart and life. David prays, Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me, and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. David knows that he too is a sinner, dependent on grace. By nature he is no better than others. He too is inclined to evil. It's so easy to offend God and hurt the neighbour. To choose a hurtful way. A way that causes hurt and sorrow to God, to others, as well as to myself. A way in which you are in danger of moving away from God, like the enemies. And that's what David's afraid of, that he would move away from God. No way, nowhere can you escape God's protective care. And you don't need to. Yet people try to free themselves from God with all the painful consequences in this life and the next. It's disastrous. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness, shall surround him. Psalm 32 verse 10. Thus David prays, Lord, please have a good look. Behind the closed curtain of my heart, behind the impressive facade of my piety. If the Lord knew how I really was, what I really think, of course the Lord knows it altogether. And that could be a terrifying thought. For who can stand before holy God? But what do we tend to do? We push the thought aside. 
yet it keeps coming back. We again try to ignore it. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17 verse 9. We start making excuses. We start justifying our thoughts and behaviour. It's not really that bad. Overall, I'm still a good Christian. Besides, I'm not the only one thinking like that or acting like that. No need to worry about it. And then we can be very good at seeing other people's wrongs. But we don't see our own wrongs. We don't want to see it. Look what David does. He goes to the Lord with it. Lord, I don't want to hide anything from you. I don't have to explain anything to you. You know it. You know that tendency to exalt myself above others and to hurt others. The tendency to walk away from you and your wholesome law. Yes, that shouldn't be the case. But it's there in me. I'm sometimes so afraid of myself. Yes, I can sometimes be my own biggest enemy. Help me, Lord. Yes, this is a cry for help. A cry of someone who recognises his sin, weakness. Lord, cleanse my heart and life. Convict me of my sin. Take me away from that path that causes nothing but grief and sorrow. That dead-end road. Put me on the path that leads to life, to life in communion with you. The way of Jesus Christ, the way of the Holy Spirit. Lead me in the way everlasting, in the way that is lasting and leads to everlasting life. May I in this way continue to enjoy your favour now and forever. Isn't this amazing, beloved? The Lord knows perfectly well how I am deep down. Yet he wishes to take me along, to take me by the hand, so to speak, and to lead me to his eternal kingdom, saved by Jesus Christ from the coming judgment. Isn't that a wonder a miracle of grace. We pray for the coming of God's kingdom. We pray for the repentance of sinners and for justice. God has heard the prayers of the saints and will continue to hear it. You only need to reflect on the fact that all Christians were once in their forebears, among the wicked 
and rebellious. Think of Paul. Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, was subdued by sovereign grace. Act 9. And praise God, he was merciful also to me, a sinner. The church on earth still faces constant threats. Bloodthirsty men, vicious enemies of God are present all across the globe. Many Christians still lose their lives because of their faith and witness. What a comfort it is to know that justice will one day be restored and that the blood of the saints will be vindicated not by their family, not by their throne friends, but by God himself, the just judge. We pray for the conversion of the men who persecuted and killed the saints. But if they do not repent, we are assured that God's wrath will consume them. We will join the great multitude around the throne singing, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has avenged the blood of his servants. Revelation 19 verse 1 and 2. It's only through Jesus Christ that you can escape that just judgment of God. Christ bore God's wrath in our place at Golgotha. He redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3 verse 13. Come then to him in faith. Cling to him, the saviour of the world. Be conscious of the seriousness of your sin against the most high majesty of God and how you deserved his wrath and judgment. At the same time, be assured of his grace in Jesus Christ, of the forgiveness of your sins, of the renewal of your life through his spirit, and show a true zeal for his kingdom, wanting to live and fight for his glory. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, search our hearts and see if there be any wicked and hurtful way in us. Where there is wickedness, convict us of our sin and cleanse us through Christ's blood and spirit. Lead us in the everlasting way. 
Father, there's still so much opposition to you, your word, and your church. Many Christians across the globe are being humiliated, ostracized, threatened, even killed because of their faith. Protect and strengthen your people. Help us all to persevere, whatever the circumstances, so that your name may be praised. Frustrate the plans of your enemies, also those who propagate evil in our society and try to silence the Christian voice. May evildoers and murderers be brought to trial and be punished for their crimes. And may through this, many of those enemies come to realise the seriousness of their act and be brought to faith in you. We know that no sinner is beyond reach of you to convert. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and others whom you converted from being fierce enemies to becoming useful instruments in your kingdom. And Father, if your enemies do not repent, grant them their due judgment in time and eternity. Free us from personal hatred or vindictiveness. Help us to leave vengeance to you. Thank you for the assurance that you will one day vindicate your people and restore justice. We look forward to that day when the fullness of your kingdom comes and when you will be all in all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.